It's my pleasure, it's our pleasure to welcome today Stephen Barr, who is a uh, professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy and the director of the Bartol Research Institute at the University of Delaware. Uh, he has been there since 1987. Um, he is a theoretical particle physics. He got his PhD in physics from Princeton University, uh, held research positions at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of Washington and the Brookhaven National Laboratory. But that's not why he's here today, um, or not entirely why he's here today. Uh, he has um, also, let me finish about the, uh, about the, about the science first. Uh, he has uh, written uh, a lot on grand unified theories, whatever that is, uh, and cosmology of the early universe, much about the origin of the universe. He has written 150 uh, research papers. Um, and uh, an article on the grand unification from the Encyclopedia of Physics. He's lectured a lot about that, but uh, what he's also done is lectured a lot about uh, the relationship between science and religion. He is the author of Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, A Student's Guide to Natural Science. He has recently published a collection of his articles, a lot of them from First Things, um, uh, as a book entitled The Believing Scientist, and this will be for sale after the lecture, cash or credit happily accepted. I've read it and it's an outstanding book, so I highly recommend it. Um, most recently, uh, he is the founder and president of a new society, the Society of Catholic Scientists, which is an organization uh, where Catholics can share their knowledge and perspectives and intellectual and spiritual gifts with one another, so it's about fellowship, but it also has a little bit of a mission, uh, not only to uh, make the point that science and religion are not at odds with one another, they're actually very good friends. Uh, they help each other, they need each other, they support each other. Um, and um, so a lot of it is about how uh, Catholic scientists can interact with the wider community. Um, and the first meeting of the society will take place in Chicago in April of this year, in a couple of months. Um, okay, so it's my pleasure, Steve, Steve Barr. Can you hear me uh, okay? Thanks, uh, Stephen, and thanks uh, to Thomas Levergood for inviting me, and the Lumen Christi Institute, and thank you all for coming out on this cold evening to hear me. Uh, I'm going to be speaking, even though I'm a physicist, not a biologist, I hope you'll forgive me that if for speaking about evolution. I'm going to speak about the theory of evolution from a Catholic perspective. Now, when people speak about evolution, they can mean different things. So we must distinguish several layers of evolution. First is the idea of the evolution of species. That is, that the present species of plants and animals arose from other species by a gradual process of evolution, and that ultimately all of them came from a single original form of life. This is sometimes called common descent, since it says that everything descended from a common ancestor. Second, we have the evolution of the human race. The idea that human beings evolved in the same way and thus are part of the same branching tree of life. However, we must be careful here. Do we mean the evolution only of the human body, that is, the evolution of human beings from the physical point of view, or do we mean the evolution of 
human beings in their entirety, body and soul? As we'll see, that is an all-important question. And third, we have the idea that the principal mechanism of evolution is natural selection acting on random genetic mutations, which is the heart of Darwinism or neo-Darwinism. Now, one can find many shades of opinion on the subject of evolution, but basically there are two major battles going on simultaneously that involve evolution and religion. The first battle, is, and I should say these are mostly battles that are happening in the United States, not so much in Europe, but the first battle is between so-called creationists and modern science and has been going on since Darwin's day. Creationists deny that evolution happened at all, <clears throat> or at most, they concede a very limited role to it. Some of them accept that microevolution might have happened, such as the evolution of one kind of cat from another, but uh, they reject the idea of macroevolution, such as the evolution of mammals from reptiles and of all living things, ultimately from, from single-celled organisms. This creationism versus evolution fight has very little intellectual interest in our day. In the view of most scientists, almost all scientists, no matter what their religious stance, whether they're atheists or agnostics or religious, the evidence that evolution of species happened and, and for common descent is simply overwhelming and growing stronger every day. Anyone who thinks that this scientific consensus is ever going to be overturned is naive. There is simply an irreconcilable difference between the ideas of modern science and any religion that denies that the evolution of species happened. Fortunately, as Catholics, we are not in that position. The second battle has only been going on for about 20 years and is between the so-called intelligent design movement and Darwinism. The intelligent design movement does not dispute, officially at least, that evolution has happened, but says that the Darwinian explanations of it are inadequate. Some clarification is necessary. All Christians believe that God is intelligent and designed the universe, but the intelligent design movement says much more than that. There is claiming that a particular biological theory is inadequate or wrong. So one can believe in God without agreeing with the distinctive claims of the intelligent design movement. Now one might ask, why have all of these evolution battles heated up so much in recent years? When I was young, in the 1970s and 1960s and 70s, one did not hear so much, or at least I didn't hear so much, about anti-evolutionism in its various forms. What's going on? The recent flare-up is due largely to aggressive atheists on one hand and a certain kind of biblical literalism on the other. Some Protestants, including most but not all evangelicals, are committed to this kind of biblical literalism because they think it follows logically from a central principle of Protestantism, sola scriptura, uh, that is, that scripture is the only authority in matters of faith. And so for them, accepting evolution is impossible. On the other side, we have many people, such as the biologist Richard Dawkins and the philosopher Daniel Dennett, to mention just two out of many, attacking religion, all religion, 
uh, not just fundamentalist religion, but all religion, using Darwinism as a weapon. They say that evolution has dethroned man by showing that we are merely highly evolved animals, differing in degree but not in kind uh, from other animals. They also say that evolution has demolished the ancient argument from design for the existence of God by showing how things that seem to be designed arose by blind natural forces. Catholics, of course, don't agree with atheists like Dawkins and Dennett on the philosophical implications of evolution, nor do we agree with the fundamentalists on the meaning of the Bible. So what has the Catholic Church had to say about evolution? As far as official teaching goes, that is pronouncements of the magisterium, the church said virtually nothing for almost 100 years after Darwin published his theory in 1859. However, some sense of the general attitude of Catholic scholars and theologians towards evolution in the early days of the theory can be gotten from looking at the old Catholic encyclopedia, which was written in the first decade of the 20th century. Of course, this was not an official document of the church's magisterium, but it was one of the outstanding products of Catholic scholarship at that time, and it carried an imprimatur and nihil obstat, certifying that it contained nothing contrary to Catholic doctrine. The article, and that, by the way, that article be, can be read online. The whole encyclopedia is, has been uploaded, so you can read it online for yourself. The article in that encyclopedia, entitled Catholics and Evolution, first summarized the theory of evolution as it stood at that time, and then said, this is the gist of the theory of evolution as a scientific hypothesis. It is in perfect agreement with the Christian conception of the universe. An impressive book of Catholic apologetics called The Question Box, long out of print, was published around the same time in a question and answer format, this book, sold, uh, uh, this book responded to hundreds of common objections to the Catholic faith. This book sold several million copies and seems to have been given to students in Catholic high schools in those days. I have my mother's old copy uh, dating from her high school days in the 1930s. In answer to the question on page eight, may a Catholic believe in evolution? The book said, as the church has made no pronouncement upon evolution, Catholics are perfectly free to accept evolution either as a scientific hypothesis or as a philosophical speculation. Now, what both of these books were speaking about in the sentences I've just quoted was the evolution of species, that is, of plants and animals. As far as the evolution of human beings was concerned, they were much more cautious. They pointed out that the human soul, being spiritual, cannot be reduced to matter. It goes beyond mere physics, chemistry, and biology, and therefore cannot be explained by any merely material process, such as evolution. Evolution of the human spiritual soul is therefore contrary to Catholic faith. As to whether the human body evolved, these articles came to no conclusion. The encyclopedia admitted that it was, quote, 
per se not improbable, unquote, that the human body had evolved, and noted that a version of this idea had, quote, been propounded by St. Augustine in the fifth century. However, both books thought that scientific evidence for human evolution was weak and observed that most theologians of that era, most Catholic theologians of that era, had a negative view of the idea that humans evolved. Nevertheless, they admitted that there was no official church teaching on the matter. As far as the mechanism of evolution is concerned, little was said. The idea that evolution of plants and animals was a purely natural process did not seem to be a problem for the church. This is an area where the church's deep philosophical traditions served her very well. Many opponents of evolution see nature and God as being somehow in competition with each other. So that the more we attribute to natural processes or natural causes, the less we can attribute to God and vice versa. But the church has never accepted this dichotomy. She has always understood that there are two levels of causality, which were called by scholastic theologians primary and secondary causality. These concepts are best explained by a simple analogy. Consider the play Hamlet. In that play, the character Polonius dies because the character Hamlet stabs him through a curtain. So consider the following question. Did Polonius die because the character Hamlet stabbed him? Or did Polonius die because Shakespeare wrote the play that way? Of course, it's an idiotic question. Both, both the character Hamlet and the playwright Shakespeare are causes of Polonius dying, but they are causes on different levels. Hamlet is the cause within the play, within its plot, the horizontal cause, you might say, whereas Shakespeare is the cause of the play, of the whole play, its entire plot, the vertical cause, you might cause, call that. These two kinds of causality are obviously not in competition. By analogy, the events in the physical world have amongst themselves various horizontal causal relationships. Theologians traditionally call these natural causes within the world secondary causes rather than horizontal causes. And God, as the author of the whole universe and of its whole plot, is the vertical cause, or as theologians said, the primary cause. There's no contradiction or competition between the two. Rather, God's primary causality undergirds all secondary causality. The fact that one physical event can cause another in the natural world is ultimately because God has created a world in which such causal relationships exist. If fire burns wood, it is only because God has created a universe, a world in which there are laws of nature, which are God's laws and are such that fire burns wood. 
This basic insight about primary and secondary causality is related to another insight of traditional Catholic teaching, which is that God in his divine nature is outside the flow of time, in the same way that Shakespeare is outside the plot of his play. Shakespeare is not, with, is not changing as the play moves along. God sees from all eternity the whole pattern of history from beginning to end, which unfolds according to his plan. The idea of God having to intervene repeatedly to take care of unforeseen problems, or that he is, as it were, making it up as he goes along, is utterly alien to Catholic thought, which sees God as creating everything, all events within the universe, which to us are past, present, and future, by a single all-encompassing act of his will. The question box used an analogy. A billiard player wishes to send 100 balls in different directions which will require greater skill, to make a hundred strokes and send each ball separately to its goal, or by hitting one ball to send all the 99 others in the directions which he has in view. And the old Catholic Encyclopedia put it this way, if God produced the universe by a single creative act of his will, then its natural development by laws implanted in it by its creator is to the greater glory of his divine power and wisdom. The encyclopedia then went on to quote Aquinas and Suarez. St. Thomas says, the potency of the cause is greater the more remote the effects to which it extends. And Suarez says, God does not interfere directly with the natural order where secondary causes suffice to produce the intended effect. The church is always taught that there is a natural order that comes from God, and the greater the powers and potentialities that God has implanted in nature, the more it shows forth his power and greatness. To be sure, these old Catholic articles on evolution condemned atheist interpretations of it, which deny the existence of God or his providential governance of the world, but they sharply distinguish such philosophical extrapolations from evolution as a biological theory. Were these articles atypical of Catholic thinking? I don't think so. For example, John Henry Newman, later Cardinal Newman, and now blessed John Henry Newman, is considered by many the greatest Catholic theologian of the 19th century. Newman wrote in a letter to the Reverend David Brown in 1874, I see nothing in the theory of evolution inconsistent with an almighty creator and protector. Even earlier in 1868, he said, the theory of Darwin is not necessarily atheistic. It may simply suggest a larger idea of divine prescience and skill. Even earlier, in 1863, he wrote in one of his notebooks, and this is four years after the origin of species, he wrote in one of his notebooks, 
There's as much want of simplicity in the idea of creation of distinct species as in that of the creation of trees in full growth whose seed is in themselves or of rocks with fossils in them. I mean, that it is as strange that monkeys should be so like men with no historical connection between them as the notion that there should be no course of history by which fossil bones got into rocks. And in the same notebook he wrote, if secondary causes are conceivable, I, don't, I do not see why the series of such causes should not ex last for millions of years as for thousands. It, you can only be impressed that he got the point so quickly. You know, here we are 150 years later and Christians are still worried about evolution. Newman saw right away that there was no problem. And notice the idea of secondary causality was the key thing. In 1908, G.K. Chesterton, perhaps the most popular Catholic author of his time, wrote his, in his marvelous little book, Orthodoxy, actually it was written while he was still an Anglican, I should note, in his marvelous little book, Orthodoxy, if evolution simply means that a positive thing called an ape turned very slowly into a positive thing called a man, then it is stingless for the most orthodox. For a, for a personal God might just as well do things slowly as quickly, especially if, like the Christian God, he were outside time. The first official pronouncement of the church on the subject of evolution did not come until 1950, when Pope Pius XII issued his encyclical letter, Humani Generis. The Pope specifically addressed the question of the evolution of man, of human beings. And his central point was that one must dis distinguish the origin of the human body and the origin of the human spiritual soul. The evolution of the spiritual soul, of course, he said, uh, could not, was inconsistent with Catholic faith. On the evolution of the human body, he still took a very cautious stance, even though this was 1950. He said that Catholic scholars could investigate it as a hypothesis as long as they did not jump to any conclusions rashly. Though he was obviously less convinced by the evidence than were most scientists of that time, it's clear that he thought the matter was to be decided by the evidence, empirical evidence, and that he was willing to let the chips fall where they may. Another point that Pope Pius XII addressed was the question of monogenism versus polygenism. That is, whether all human beings were descended from a single original pair of humans, call them Adam and Eve, or many. He said the Catholic scholars had to adhere to the traditional position of monogenism. However, he did not absolutely close the door to polygenism, as many people have pointed out. He said that, quote, it is in no way apparent, unquote, how polygenism can be reconciled with certain Catholic teachings, in particular on original sin. But his precise wording is significant. He did not assert that these ideas couldn't be reconciled, only that it was not apparent how they could be. In recent times, many Catholic theologians have abandoned monogenism because they think that the theory of evolution requires polygenism. It would if the emergence of true human beings with spiritual souls were simply a matter of biological speciation. I'll return to this question later. 
The next notable church statement on evolution did not come for nearly a half a century later. In 1996, Pope John Paul II delivered an important address about evolution to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. Referring to the encyclical Humani Generis, he said, today, half a century after the appearance of that encyclical, some new findings lead us toward the recognition of evolution as more than a hypothesis. In fact, it is remarkable that this theory has had a progressively greater influence on the spirit of researchers following this, a series of discoveries in different scholarly disciplines. The convergence in the results of these independent studies, which was neither planned nor sought, constitutes in itself a significant argument in favor of the theory." Unquote. Of course, the Pope was not officially teaching that evolution is true. The Church does not claim to have the competence to have competence in deciding scientific questions. The Pope was simply recognizing an obvious fact, namely that there was a great deal of evidence for evolution and significantly more than there had been in 1950. Pope John Paul II, in the same message, in the same address, reiterated what he called the essential point made by his predecessor, namely that, quote, if the human body takes its origin from pre-existing living matter, nevertheless, the spiritual soul is immediately created by God. I should point out that here immediately means directly as opposed to through secondary causes. This has always been the essential point for Catholics. For Catholics, it's the spiritual soul that uh, it is the fact that the spiritual soul did not evolve that uh, is, is crucial. Evolution is a theory of how atoms came to be assembled in certain ways to form biological organisms. However, we human beings are not just assemblages of atoms. We are also spiritual in that we have rational intellects and free will. Not even many Catholics don't realize when the Catholic Church talks about something being spiritual, it's referring to intellect and will, the power of reason and the power of free will. Those are the, are at the aspects of a human being that make us spiritual. And these powers of intellect and will, according to the church, cannot be explained merely in terms of the motion of atoms. That means that there's not just a difference of degree between us and other animals, but what John Paul II called an ontological discontinuity between us and them. The next important statement was a document issued in 2004 by the International Theological Commission, which is a body that advises the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, at that time headed by Cardinal Ratzinger. The document called Communion and Stewardship was approved for publication by Cardinal Ratzinger. It analyzes some of the philosophical and theological issues surrounding evolution. It stresses the same points made by Pius XII and John Paul II, but it contains a lot more. And in particular, it argues that the neo-Darwinian mechanism of evolution is not incompatible with the Catholic doctrine of divine providence. I'll come back to that very important point later also. So we can see from all this that the Catholic Church and the best Catholic thinkers have never been caught up in anti-evolutionism. As I noted, that has largely been a fundamentalist Protestant phenomenon. 
Now, I will change the focus a little and look at eight reasons that some people have for rejecting evolution. I'm going to start with several reasons that are rather flimsy and then take up the more difficult questions, more subtle questions. So reason one is that evolution seems to some people to disagree with the biblical account of creation. The question box, this old book, 100-year-old book, answered this well. It quoted, well, the Bible is not a textbook of science and therefore cannot rightly be quoted either for or against evolution. As Pope Leo XIII says in his encyclical Providentissimus Deus, the, the sacred writers did not intend to teach men these things, that is to say the essential nature of the things of the visible universe. Okay. Pope Leo XIII wrote that in 1893, said the Bible is not a textbook of science. One should also note that some of the church fathers, including the greatest of them, St. Augustine, took many of the things in the book of Genesis in a symbolic way. For example, Augustine did not take the six days of creation literally as an actual sequence in time. He considered that the whole universe was created in a single instant and then underwent a natural process of development through powers that God, potentialities that God had given to the universe at the beginning. St. Thomas Aquinas followed Augustine's view on this. St. Thomas said, that the idea of a temporally successive creation was more common and, and, quote, superficially more in accord with the letter of scripture, unquote, but that St. Augustine's view was more, quote, in accordance with reason, unquote, and that therefore he, St. Thomas, preferred it. Reason two, is that evolution seems to some to take away from human dignity by saying that we are descended from apes. However, it's not clear why being directly formed from the dust of the ground is more dignified. An ape is certainly something higher than dirt. In fact, the Bible in many places emphasizes that we are creatures of dust precisely to show us our lowliness. Our dignity comes not from our physical origin, but from our spiritual nature. Only in the account of man's creation do we find it said that, quote, God breathed into him and he became a living soul. The church fathers understood this to mean, to be a symbolic way of say saying, that only on human beings did God confer a spiritual nature in some way resembling his own, and that this is why only human beings are said by scripture to be made in the image of God. As, as it happens, science agrees with the Bible that we came from dust. Billions of years ago, there were just particles of, uh, there were just particles and dust from which condensed all stars and planets and living things. Whether we came from dust very quickly, as portrayed in Genesis, 
or through a slow process, as described by science, is really theologically irrelevant, as Chesterton observed. Our bodies are taken from the dust, and they will return to dust. Reason number three is that evolution seems to some people to imply that there's only a difference of degree between man and animals. However, that conclusion would only follow if we deny what John Paul II called the essential point, that human beings have spiritual souls as well as bodies. Reason four is that evolution is naturalistic. Some people think that explaining things naturally rather than supernaturally leaves God with less to do. This kind of concern has always puzzled me. People hardly ever raise this objection to the natural explanations of things given in astronomy, geology, physics, or chemistry. It is only in biology that they seem to see a problem with naturalism. However, we have already seen the fallacy involved in this point of view, namely failing to distinguish between primary and secondary causality. Reason five is that Darwinian evolution seems to some people to be inconsistent with Christian belief in the fall of man and its consequences. Traditionally, death was seen to be a consequence of the sin of Adam. St. Paul says, the death entered the world because of Adam's sin. So how, some people ask, can death be a consequence of Adam's sin? If animals were dying for hundreds of millions of years before the first humans appeared, and if indeed the first humans evolved through a process that involved life and death struggle, and if we therefore have been, our nature has been shaped to a large extent by that struggle, the answer is that, first of all, the church only t teaches and only has ever taught that human death is a consequence of the fall. There is no Catholic doctrine, and never has been, linking the death of plants and animals to Adam's sin. That, again, is a fundamentalist idea, not an idea that arose within Catholicism. The Catholic view has been that bodily death is part of the natural order for plants and animals, including human beings as animals. Thus, when God offered Adam and Eve the gift of bodily immortality, as long as they did not sin, he was offering them what traditional Catholic theology called a preternatural gift. That was the terminology a preternatural gift, a gift that goes beyond what is natural, because for animals, death is natural. So when the first human being sinned, that preternatural gift was withdrawn, and human beings reverted to the condition of physical mortality, which was natural to them as to all of their animal forebears. That was the traditional Catholic view. Some have also asked how lust and violence, since sin, human sin, is the result of the fall. Some have asked how lust and violence can be a consequence of the fall if they are part of our animal inheritance and bred into us by evolution. The very question is, is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of Catholic teaching. 
The sin of lust is not to be identified with the sexual instinct or with sexual attraction, which are not in themselves morally evil and which we undoubtedly have in common with animals. Otherwise, animals would be guilty of the sin of lust. Nor is anger, which animals also exhibit, it in itself morally evil. Rather, sin comes from the failure to subject these passions to the control of reason. Concupiscence, the technical term in Catholic theology, concupiscence, which the church teaches to be a consequence of the fall, is the disorder within each human being whereby the control of reason over these passions is weakened, thus making us prone to sin, so that the passions often control us rather than we controlling them. So it is quite consistent to say that the human passions themselves have a biological evolutionary origin, whereas their subjection to reason, like reason itself, was a gift from above, a gift partly lost through sin. So none of the objections up to this point, these five objections, should have any force for Catholics, and indeed, historically, they've had very little, if any. So now let me turn to three more serious objections. Reason number six is that according to evolutionary theory, a biological species arises by a gradual process over many generations by the spreading of genetic changes within a population. Whereas both the book of Genesis and the traditional Catholic view called monogenism state that the human race appeared suddenly with just two individuals. Moreover, genetic evidence strongly implies that the human race is traceable to not just two individuals, of, but to an ancestral population of several thousand individuals, inter, an interbreeding population of several thousand individuals uh, sometime around 200,000 years ago. Now the answer to this is also not complicated and has been proposed by many people, including C.S. Lewis and various Catholic authors. Biological species do indeed arise gradually by genetic changes spreading throughout populations, but the human race in the theological sense is not just a biological species defined by its physical characteristics. We have spiritual souls. One either has a spiritual soul or one doesn't. There are not degrees of having one. Thus, the transition from creatures that did not have spiritual souls to those who did was necessarily a sudden one. One can imagine that on the physical and biological level, there was a long, slow process, and that in the fullness of time, when some proto-human creatures had attained a level where they were capable of receiving spiritual souls, that is, the powers of reason and free will, God conferred them on one pair out of a population of thousands. Or if polygenism is true, God could have conferred this gift on several of them or on all of them. This gift would not have destroyed their animal nature, but raised it to a higher level. One can think of this 
as one of a series of such transformative supernatural gifts. First, were the first humans, there was the gift of rationality and freedom that made them spiritual beings. And this gift is repeated with every human child that is conceived. For remember that according to Catholic teaching, the spiritual soul does not come through biological reproduction. It's not passed to the child from, through the sperm and the egg, but is to confer directly on each person by God. Second, there is the gift of the supernatural life of grace conferred in baptism. And finally, there's the gift of glorification and the beatific vision that the redeemed enjoy in heaven. None of these gifts destroys what preceded it, but raises it to a level that it could not have attained naturally. Reason number seven is that evolution is opposed supposedly to design. The atheist biologist Richard Dawkins has claimed that Darwinism has destroyed once and for all the so-called argument from design for the existence of God. Once upon a time, he says, people believed that the intricate structures of living things proved that they must be the product of an intelligent designer, whereas now we realize they're the product of blind forces of nature and specifically of natural selection. Dawkins concedes that living things have all the earmarks that we normally associate with design, complexity, functionality, interdependence of parts. However, this appearance of design we now know to be misleading. He therefore calls living things designoids, things that appear to be designed but are not. By showing that no designer of living things is necessary, Darwin made it possible, says Dawkins, to be for the first time, quote, an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Let us suppose that Dawkins is right about designoids, as I'm perfectly willing to concede. Would that really mean that Darwin had destroyed the old argument from design, or the existence of God? No, for several reasons. First of all, we must note that the design argument has two forms, at least two forms. It actually has many. There's what I'll call the cosmic design argument, which starts with the orderliness and lawfulness of the cosmos as a whole. And there's what I shall call the biological design argument, which starts from the structure of living things and their complexity. If one looks at the scriptures and the writings of early Christians and church fathers, I think that one finds the cosmic design argument to be the older, more important, and more fundamental one. Consider, for example, this passage from Minucius Felix, a Christian writer of around 200 AD, writing in Latin, one of the so-called Latin apologists. If upon entering some home, this was a, written in a book that was directed against pagans who did not believe in a creator god. If upon entering some home you saw that everything there was well tended, neat, and decorative, you would believe that some master was in charge of it, and that he was himself much superior to those good things. So too in the home of this world, when you see providence, order, and law in the heavens and on earth, believe that there is a Lord and author of the universe more beautiful than the stars themselves in the various parts of the whole world. Notice providence, order, and law of the cosmos. 
Psalm 148 refers to God giving to the sun, moon, stars, and heavens a, quote, law that will not pass away. The book of Jeremiah speaks of God having a covenant with day and night and having, having given laws to heaven and earth. The letter of St. Clement, traditionally listed as the fourth pope, St. Uh, Clement of Rome, writing around 97 AD, says, the heavens as they revolve beneath his government do so in quiet submission to him. The day and the night run in the course he has laid down for them. Sun, moon, and the starry choirs roll on in harmony at his command, none swerving from his appointed orbit. Laws of the same kind sustain the fathomless deeps of the abyss and the untold regions of the netherworld. The impassable ocean and all the worlds that lie beyond it are themselves ruled by like ordinances of the Lord. Upon all of these, the great architect and Lord of the universe has enjoined peace and harmony. One could give other examples, but these are enough to show that where the focus traditionally was, it was on the providence, order, lawfulness, and harmony of the cosmos as a whole, which pointed to its creation by a rational mind. It was the lawfulness of the world that pointed to a lawgiver. Biological structure did not loom large in these arguments. I think that the emphasis and even fixation on biology is a mo was a modern development. Finally, reason number eight is that according to Darwinian evolution, to Darwinism, evolution is fueled by random genetic mutations. And randomness, the idea of randomness spooks some people. They think that randomness is inconsistent with divine providence. If something happens by chance, doesn't that mean that God was not in control of it? No less a theologian, by the way, this is, an, this is a question that long predated evolution because people have known since prehistoric times, presumably, that chance played a role in the world. And many authors, ancient and throughout history, have talked about the role of chance. So the question of whether, how things could be a matter of chance and yet God govern the world is, is a theological question that goes back to the first days of the church. No less a theologian than St. Thomas Aquinas says that there is no contradiction. Book 3, chapter 74 of his Summa Contra Gentiles has, a, has the title, quote, Divine Providence Does Not Exclude Fortune and Chance. I think that at some level everyone realizes this. Being Christians does not stop us from speaking about chance, accident, randomness, and probability in many everyday situations. And no one imagines that when we do, we're saying anything unchristian, let alone atheistic. We say, for example, I found the book quite by chance, or there was a traffic accident on Lakeshore Drive, or we talk about a random collection of objects, we ask what the chance or probability of winning the lottery or getting a Delta full house or three of a kind in a game of poker. Of course, God knew from all eternity that you would find that book, that the cars would collide on the highway. What would be in that random collection of objects? Who would win the lottery? And what cards would be dealt in that poker game? Not only did he know, but he caused all of those things as the author of the universe and of its entire plot. 
at least according to St. Thomas Aquinas, nothing escapes God's knowledge or is outside his plan. So from the vertical perspective of God, who is outside the flow of time, nothing is by chance. But from our horizontal perspective, crawling along through time, they are. We know all this when it comes to everyday life, but for some strange reason, many people forget it when talking about evolution. Chance, randomness, and probability play a role in many natural processes. The molecules in the air in this room move around randomly, according to certain probability distributions. Certain animals spawn vast numbers of offspring. Why? To, counter, to compensate for the fact that the chances of any one of them surviving is low. Why are so many sperm sent off in search of the egg? Because the chances of one sperm, any one sperm, accomplishing its task are exceedingly small. It's not clear why God should not achieve his ends in a similar way in evolution. If God can so arrange things that many larvae are produced so that a few of them shall win out and survive to adulthood, why should he not arrange that many genetic mutations should occur so that some of them shall win out to produce new and interesting creatures? From what I've said up to this point, it should be apparent that the Catholic Church has never had a quarrel with evolution or the Darwinian theory of natural selection acting on random genetic mutations. And that these theories pose no danger to traditional Catholic belief or orthodoxy. Catholics are therefore free to follow the evidence wherever it may lead, and that is what the church has wisely taught and continues to teach. I'd just like to add a couple of words, a few words at the end, about what, can some, I can, what contemporary science has to say about human origins. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a major dispute over whether the human race had evolved in just one place or whether it happened simultaneously and somewhat independently in many places around the world, the so-called multi-regional hypothesis. That multi-regional hypothesis obviously is more difficult to reconcile with Catholic teaching about origin the original unity of the human race and its fall. There could not have been a first set of human beings from whom we are all descended and from whom we inherited a fallen human nature. Over time, however, the single region hypothesis, the single region hypothesis has prevailed. It's now believed that every human being alive today is descended from a single interbreeding population which numbered in the several thousands that lived about 200,000 years ago in a very small geographical area, probably in East Africa. Now, the multi-regional hypothesis has a bit of truth in it, in that it is now believed that on a few occasions within the last 60,000 years, a few episodes of interbreeding occurred between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals and Denisovans, which were other species of the genus Homo, who probably emerged in Eurasia rather than in Africa. But this does not change the basic picture, now generally accepted, of a single origin of the human race among a very small population in a very small region. But science may be getting even closer to the traditional Catholic view, perhaps even to monogenism. 
Just a year ago, a book came out by Robert Berwick and Noam Chomsky <coughs> of MIT, which will be of epic-making importance if, if its conclusions hold up. It's about the origin of the human language capacity. Their book is entitled, Why Only Us? As this title implies, Berwick and Chomsky argue that only human beings have language, by which they mean syntactically hierarchical language. That is, the ability to generate an unlimited number of hierarchically structured sentences of unlimited complexity. Such a capacity is obviously inseparable from our capacity for rational thought. And remember that from the perspective of Catholic theology, it is the power of reason, rational understanding, and rational choice that makes us spiritual beings. It's not that some other animals possess this capacity in germ or to a slight degree. Berwick and Chomsky argue, I think rather persuasively, that no other animals possess it at all. Moreover, they argue that this capacity must have arisen very suddenly, likely in one generation, in a, and likely in a single member of the species Homo sapiens, as a consequence of a very few fortuitous and unlikely genetic mutations. These genetic mutations, they suggest, would have upgraded our neural machinery in such a way as to permit the processing of human language. They base their conclusions on an array of sophisticated arguments based on linguistics, neuroscience, genetics, computer science, evolutionary theory, and studies of animal communication. I refer you to their book for their arguments. If they proved to be right, it would bring the scientific picture of how humanity arose very close indeed to traditional Catholic thinking on the subject. Close to, but not exactly to, the Catholic understanding. For there's more to human reason than the manipulation of words and, and the neural machinery required for that. There's the capacity for abstract understanding, for insight, and for the grasp of truth, for the ideas that get formulated in words and, and language. As Catholics, we understand that something more is involved in the origin of the human race and of every hu individual human life than is within the ken of neuroscience and genetics, something which we call the spiritual soul. Thank you.